welcome to Sentient Planet. Do you hear the call? Are Australian koalas faring after the massive fires that tore through the southern continent a little over a year ago? One of the best people to ask is Kate Fairman. The Aussie environmental activist turned state politician was the chair of a recent New South Wales parliamentary inquiry into the animal's status. What the committee found wasn't good, leading Kate to write a direct and heartfelt foreword. Without urgent and wide-sweeping government intervention, the koala will be extinct by 2050, erasing from the world a beloved marsupial that's been around for at least 25 million years and robbing from our grandchildren the opportunity of ever seeing one in the wild. I talked to Kate about her report, the threats to koalas that existed even before the Great Fires, and the local and international dismay at the situation and the business-as-usual response from Australian governments. So, Kate, welcome to Sentient Planet, and thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Kate, the Australian koala, one of the most iconic and beloved animals in the world, and they were just devastated in the most heart-wrenching way during the horrific bushfires you guys had down there in the 2019-2020 season. You're the author of a report to the New South Wales Parliament on the impact of those fires and other threats that that animal faces, and some of the things that the government could do to help that animal recover. What did you find? What is the koala's current status in New South Wales? Well, it isn't great, to be honest, but interestingly, this inquiry that the report uh, was the culmination of, this parliamentary inquiry in New South Wales, Basically, we started it before the bushfires because koalas were already in trouble before the bushfires. And really, they were in trouble largely because of climate change and the ongoing clearing of their habitat here in New South Wales. So what we saw was that basically we had witnesses to the inquiry who were telling us that koalas were essentially dehydrated, coming into care because the eucalyptus trees that they feed upon were so stressed from the lack of water in the landscape because we had a drought for so long that they weren't getting the basically the water, the hydration that they needed from the leaves. Our koalas don't need to drink for a very long time in terms of water because they get it from gum leaves. So this was very distressing to us as committee members. Then we had the horrendously distressing fires that of course everybody I think saw right across the world and in fact you know we saw the smoke and everything uh, travel the globe mm -hmm. more than 10,000 koalas just here in New South Wales were killed many more across the country and then after that we just had witnesses in tears we had scientists in tears we had wildlife carers in tears and of course like koalas, they were in so much trouble before the fires. After the fires, we found that they were in serious strife and we put a call out to government. We basically passed what is essentially a key finding of that report, which said, 
no uncertain terms that koalas will become extinct here in New South Wales before 2050 unless the government takes urgent action to protect their habitat because that was also found to be the most serious ongoing threat. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here in New South Wales that is affecting the koala and it's just heartbreaking that this beautiful animal can't get the consensus needed within government to protect their habitat. So I saw just in the last few days some news reports that the New South Wales government has had a response uh, to the report that you led. What was that response? Very disappointing. The response was business as usual. We can't experience business as usual. We can't put up with business as usual any longer. The report into koalas in the first place, it had 42 recommendations. It was a game changer and it had to be a game changer. It basically said that we need a whole of government approach right now here in New South Wales and largely across Australia. Things like the protection of threatened species, the protection of koalas resides solely within the ambit of the environment minister. But all of the threats are outside largely of the environment. So we have a minister for planning and our planning laws and our environmental laws here just facilitate the ongoing destruction of habitat. They may put a few rules around it, a few conditions, if you like, but they still facilitate the destruction of habitat, similarly forestry. So one of the key, the kind of recommendations from these reports were really, we need a change in our environmental laws. We need system-wide change to ensure koalas are protected and they don't become extinct before 2050. So the government comes back. There's, well, there's a range of recommendations from the trees that are cleared for urban development. You know, let's put a stop to a lot of that. Let's look at Korkawala habitat and protect that and say no more. Uh, let's look at native forest logging, which still continues in 2021 after the devastating bushfires, after we lost millions of hectares of koala habitat here in New South Wales from the bushfires. We still have logging taking place in the unburnt areas. Just a travesty. So the government just came forward and noted quite a few of them, which I say is another word for rejected in this instance. They supported 11. They supported in principle a range of others. There was nothing new, but there needed to be a shift from the government. We didn't get it. That we're continuing. It's not okay. But um, we, there are a lot of people very upset about that here, and I have to say across the world, and we are continuing to campaign for the protection of koala habitat in New South Wales, despite what the government has uh, done just a few days ago. So a lot of pressure coming to bear from people around the world who care about that animal and are probably watching some of what the government is or isn't doing down there fairly closely. Yes, we had this legislation that came before the parliament at the end of last year, which was a shocker, which came about as a result of trying to seek a compromise. When I say compromise, this is from the government, the Conservatives, trying to find a compromise for a policy to protect koala habitat, but also be in the interests of farmers. 
uh, it's very complicated. Um, but this legislation came before Parliament, which was essentially supposed to be that. But it was going to allow farmers to call koala habitat much more than they currently do, essentially. It was basically the farmers and the developers getting their way, getting everything they've wished for in the last 20 years. Anyway, big debate. We put a call out to the public. When that debate came on in Parliament, we had people tuning in from Italy, from Germany, from West Virginia, from like London, it, um, from Estonia. It was incredible. We continue to have people contacting us on everything I do on koalas. So I, I consistently say to the government, the world is watching what you are doing. The world is watching and they're expecting you to save the koalas, not just for, of course, you know, their government, their record, but for future generations right across the globe. We don't want to see the extinction of the panda. We don't want to see the extinction of the elephant or the lion. We don't want to see the extinction of the koala. And it's such an iconic species. It represents so much more in terms of forest and bushland habitat here in New South Wales. And I just say, if we can't save the koala, then what can we save? So the prime industry, if you like, that's competing against the interests of the koala seems to be timber. Is that correct? Yes. Now, interestingly, the government, we have a coalition here between what is called the Liberals, which are the Conservatives here, as opposed to the Progressives like they are in the US, as well as the National Party, which is kind of the country party that representing farmers, although many farmers will tell you they don't represent their interests. And in fact, they seem to represent big agribusiness and yes, the timber industry. They were trying to say that this is all about the interests of farmers, but no, it's not. Delve a little bit deeper. And in fact, a lot of the uh, logging that is taking place now in New South Wales increasingly is on private land, which means some people are buying up parcels of land with the aim of logging them, which is incredibly distressing. Also, of course, some landholders want an income on the side. It's the former that's really the biggest threat. We have laws for logging on private land which are weaker than those for our public native forests. So what we're seeing now, particularly after the fires, is an increased need for timber from particularly companies like Boral. I'll name them because I think we need to start pressuring these companies a lot more. Some of that's going on. Uh, they have wood supply contracts with the government. The government can't meet the contracts Instead of just shoving leadership, looking at how to transition out of these forests, uh, make sure the workers are looked after, move into plantations, they're trying to make it easier for these timber contractors to access the timber on private land. It's shocking. And here in New South Wales, we have two out of three koalas found on private land. So we can talk about you know, protecting more of our public native forests, international parks, that's a very good step. But unless we can get that clearing on private land under control as well, where koalas are still in a lot of trouble. the average Australian, what's the Australian population feel about what's happening with the koala? Do you have a lot of local support as well or Australians more nonchalant about their fate? 
Oh, it's incredible. The love for this animal is ridiculous. It's very, it's so understandable because, I mean, my Instagram feed is just overwhelmed every single day by cute koala videos and cute koala pics. <laughs> it's like every day I'm like, wow, could they be, you know, just ridiculous. They've got that going for them, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you understand why people love them. And of course, they have this kind of adorable nature of just sitting, you know, very, very still, so vulnerable, really, uh, in a tree. We've got a big history here in Australia of culling millions of koalas, in fact, in, you know, 100 years ago or whatever for their pelts, a terrible history. And now, of course, we've only got potentially 20,000 left here in New South Wales, maybe um, a bit more across the country, but they really should, they're, they're threatened, there is no doubt, and they will become extinct if we don't act. But Yes, people absolutely love this animal. I must make a confession. I chose the koala a couple of years ago to focus on because it's so beautiful, because it's so cuddly and cute, recognising that it was this beautiful, iconic kind of keystone species, if you like. If it goes, we're really, you know, as I said, we're really in trouble. A lot of people don't understand or don't connect not as many people as you would like, unfortunately, connect with trees and, and just a forest as such. But a cuddly little koala, who hates koalas? Like nobody hates koalas <laughs> except potentially a few people in the government that I um, sit here on the crossbench trying to um, campaign against constantly. But uh, everybody, honestly, Susan, I can't begin to tell you that it's just extraordinary, overwhelming inundated with it, things every time I talk about koalas we get overwhelmed with people wanting to help. Well th those fires just really pierced a lot of hearts at home there in Australia and around the world uh, they were just so devastating of course that's fire like you said at the beginning of the interview so eloquently is just kind of the latest threat in a big way that they were facing but there's all these threats that were there before including diseases etc so the population of 20,000 koala that are left there in Australia, how healthy a population are they? Yes, that's an extremely good question because it's, it's heartbreaking actually what they're faced with. So I was talking about the dehydration, but also the stress from constantly losing their habitat, from needing to find trees, from ongoing urban development. We've got, say, people move into new suburbs, they bring their dogs. Dog attack is a real um, risk. Uh, koalas cross the roads, they get hit by cars. They also are susceptible to chlamydia in koalas, which is a terrible thing that basically you can leave them sterile, but affects their eyes. And essentially, ultimately, most of them die from it and they get skin conditions and it's really awful. And I've seen so many koalas being taken into care and stories of wildlife rescuers rescuing koalas. And then they just receive the devastating news when they take it to a vet to have a look at that the koala has chlamydia and really there's a decent amount that will need to be put down because of what, or euthanase, because of what that koala will then experience. So there's that. We heard during the inquiry of some promising research into vaccines, into treatments. This is ongoing. The government has put money into that because at this stage we can do what we can to protect their habitat, but there's other stresses as well. 
also, I was speaking of a healthy koala colony. Just yesterday, I went, um, it's just on the outskirts of Sydney, a potential new housing development that the healthiest koala colony potentially here in New South Wales is under threat from a new housing development. It's chlamydia free, it's thriving out in Western Sydney, and the government is looking at approving this housing development. So this is the insanity that we're faced with in terms of public policy. We have a government coming out saying they want to double koala numbers, yet decision after decision after decision continues to, you know, really spell the likely extinction of the koala. So they're saying one thing and they're doing something completely different. They're not backing that up with their actions, which exactly we see again and again. It was interesting what you were just saying about that one community. So I've heard about a colony also in Cabarita Beach up on the Tweed Coast. Do you know that area at all? Yes, I do. Right. So you know about that 74 acres there that the local community, uh, it's in the hands of a private developer. They think there's about 300 healthy koalas living in a colony there, and they're also trying to save that little patch. Do you know about that? Yes, I do. I mean, the north coast of New South Wales, some of your listeners might know beautiful Byron Bay, just beautiful. It's um, paradise, actually. It's paradise for us and it's paradise for koalas. And There's always this tension now with development. There's Cabarita Beach near that part of the world, beautiful. There's just a bit further down, but above Sydney, this area called Port Stephens, again, lovely. There's a massive development plan for their King Seal development, something like three and a half thousand dwellings. That's smack bang in the middle of koala habitat as well. There are probably others. I think there are others that threaten koala habitat. And It's like what I said earlier, we just need a whole systems change here in terms of how we're protecting species because our laws, they don't protect species, they facilitate the destruction of their habitat. And here in New South Wales, we've got the planning minister that's just ticking off on these developments in koala habitat. It's really, really heartbreaking and it is getting a lot of people active though. There are a lot of local communities that are really fighting this. A big system change, like what you're describing, that's a big deal, Mm. requiring a whole different system of thinking um, with people who are pretty much stuck in a different older mindset. How hopeful are you that you can make the government or inspire the government or pressure the government into being a part of that transformational change? Uh, I think change always has to start from somewhere. And we have seen here in Australia, we are similar to probably many places around the world. We've had a history of environmental laws, which really started around late 90s, mid 90s. Here in New South Wales, we in the mid 90s, we had a Threatened Species Act brought into place. But over the next 10 years, and this is under our more progressive government, which is a Labor government, we saw that starting to be whittled away, starting to be weakened because of the pressure from developers, because they weren't able to clear as much of the land that they wanted to clear because, hey, there's all these little critters, all this beautiful wildlife, um, and also threatened plants there. So we've seen this whittling away. Then we've had the conservatives come in and they've just, you know, taken basically a wrecking ball to it. So regardless of, I think, how bad it is now, I don't think we can just tweak the edges. I think koalas have a right to exist. Like koalas have a right to not become extinct. So 
we don't have that right enshrined in legislation. We don't have anywhere the right for koalas to not become extinct. We say, oh, they're threatened. We'll put in place these measures and these programs. We'll try and protect their habitat here and there and we'll monitor them. And there'll be some penalties if you harm a threatened species, but we'll give you a way around clearing it. We have these things called offsetting where you can clear koala habitat, offset it by protecting some patch of land elsewhere. It doesn't even have to be in the same area. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be koala habitat. It is a disgrace. So I think we need a conversation. Yes, this comes into the whole rights of nature field that uh, where we have where nature should have a right to exist. We've seen this with obviously uh, rivers in uh, New Zealand and in parts of South America. Increasingly, this is becoming a really exciting field. Ecocide, similarly, uh, where we are able to prosecute if someone commits a crime against Uh, I'd like to see a crime, for example, against clearing koala habitat. So I'm looking at having, basically, I'm going to hold, you know, a bunch of different um, meetings, uh, Zoom meetings, uh, webinars, discussions with experts just to look at how we bring this discussion here in New South Wales. I think the opportunity is actually um, really strong. I think a lot of people are going to listen to it much more than they would have, say, 18 months ago. Because all I hear from people, to be honest, is them saying that the koalas are becoming extinct, the laws aren't working, koala habitat has been clearing, what can we do? So I think the opportunity to have these kind of, this, you know, this discussion is, is now. Yes, it's going to take some time to get actual legislation in place, but I think we start the discussion. Right. Time is not something that the koala has a lot of left. Yes, that's right. So there's the urgency factor. And then can you help our listeners understand some of the context? So Australia has had colonial rule or um, was founded, you know, what, 250 or so years ago, had a lot more forest for animals to live in then than it does in 2021. So it seems to me we're talking about, in many ways, saving remnants because the logging has been going on for that 250 years. We've had devastating bushfires that really cleared, if you like, a lot more of the land and the forest there. Can you help people understand what's left compared to what we had and and why we need to save those remnants? Yes, we have the most beautiful natural heritage here in Australia. Yes, there's been a huge amount of clearing, firstly, you know, for housing and for agriculture, also forestry. We've, we have cleared a lot of forests historically, but we've also protected over the last, say, 40 or 50 years, we've also protected our forests. We have the most beautiful natural environment here in Australia. It's so diverse. Uh, It's so beautiful. But yes, we have lost a lot over the 200 and a little bit of uh, colonisation here. And, of course, the Aboriginal people 
cared for country so incredibly, 60,000 years of uh, caring for this most diverse environment. So we've really stuffed it up in terms of uh, white people, uh, Europeans, very quickly. We've cleared a lot. So basically we have cleared a lot for agriculture. We've cleared a lot for forestry, but we've also, uh, particularly starting from the 80s, the 70s, We've protected a lot from logging. We've also had a good history of national park uh, establishment. So for about 100, uh, more than 100 years, we've had national parks established. Thank goodness for those people that had the foresight. And I'm sure it's the same uh, all around the world. People have had the foresight to establish these incredible areas. But what we have, say, here in New South Wales, which is, again, that area you mentioned before with Cabarita Beach, where the koalas are under threat there from the development around Byron Bay, there's beautiful forests all up and down from our north coast right along the east coast, basically, of Australia that we are still logging. But it's also one of the six most biodiverse hotspots in the world, yet we also rank as the highest in terms of threatened species, like mammalian extinction in the world. It is just unbelievable. We are so rich as a country. We are, uh, you would hope, so intelligent in terms of all of the information before us and still we just can't get this under control. Um, so we have, yeah, just beautiful rainforests, literal rainforests and even bushland, big paddock trees, koalas like walking across the landscape. They, they travel right through, for example, cleared paddock land, grasslands. That's fine for koalas as long as they have corridors, they have trees around there that they can get, they have their protected from potential attackers. That's fine. But yeah, we're just clearing, we're just clearing way too much. They're very territorial. They like to have their own trees. They like to have their own area. I've also heard just really terrible stories about how much individual trees mean to koalas and how loyal they are to certain areas as well. They'll come back like night after night to particular food trees. We've heard examples of the roads authority here putting these stupid they're called collars but they're plastic bands around the trees so koalas can't go up them because they're looking at clearing them for a road and koala wildlife carers say that they have seen koalas just sit at the bottom of those trees and they sit there and they sit there and they sit there and they don't move and they essentially potentially starve that's incredible so it's like they have at least some of them have a relationship is what I'm hearing with a particular tree like we might have a relationship with our own home yes they do and this doesn't get enough attention so we can't just clear habitat and expect koalas to move on like they have a relationship with the area they have uh, they're really fussy in terms of when and what type of tree and what mood they're in so they're complicated little beasts <laughs> I know. Boy, they've got a lot of strikes against them. Yes, they do. That's why we've got to step it up if we're going to protect them. Which is also what makes those animals so incredible and all the more worthy, for want of a better word, of saving. They're just so unique and so incredible. Yes, it does. And you know what? They're the cute little mascot for all of the others. You know, they're the cute mascots for the not so cute little, we've got these little cute uh, different marsupials like 
Um, we've got little native rats and, of course, we've got beautiful owls. Everybody loves owls, so they're pretty wonderful too. Like the tawny frogmouth? Yes, beautiful tawny frogmouth, powerful owls. Their habitat is being absolutely torn to shreds as well because they need these big hollows, hollows in our trees. We, you know, One of the unique things really in terms of our natural environment and our forests are their beautiful hollows that form in the eucalyptus, the gum trees, some other trees, but largely the gum trees. And these hollows in the trunk, when the limbs fall off, the big limbs become dead, but natural process, some of them fall off, they form these hollows. They become these incredible homes to little possums and our beautiful greater gliders, which are also endangered. Little gliders that are, you have yellow bellies, they're called yellow bellied gliders. We have thousands of just these gorgeous little creatures, including parrots that use these hollows possums yeah exactly then we have farmers that can come and clear and you can have just dozens of homes inside these trees i've seen photos of big hollow trees being logged and then kind of dissected if you like and what has been living in these trees so it's not just what you see you might see a bird nest or a koala in fact koalas are kind of protecting these big trees if you like out of their cuteness but all of these others including insects and reptiles which are so essential to a healthy forest and to nature just thriving. And that's what we need, you know, with this crazy pandemic and an uncertain future in some ways in terms of climate change. We need to start really prioritising nature being able to thrive because if nature doesn't thrive... Neither do we. Yeah, exactly. You know, we get pretty sick at the same time. You know, another piece of awareness, of course, that flew around the world at the time or just after the fires was when we started seeing some of the figures in terms of the numbers of individual animals that were thought to have perished in those fires. And that was in the billions. How is the landscape and those areas in Australia now? It's what, 14 months or so, or actually it's not even that, it's just a year later. Is there recovery happening? Is there wildlife and landscape and habitat that's starting to recover or not? Yeah, there is some. I must admit I got goosebumps when you talked about the numbers of animals because it's, I think, still so traumatising for everyone um, how much of our beautiful wildlife and down to the insects and um, reptiles were killed during those fires. But There's also, and in fact, this time last year, I was embarking on a wildlife kind of carers uh, support mission. So put a call out for donations, quickly got a van. Um, We just rushed down to the south coast where it was safe to do so, which is the south coast of New South Wales with some of that horrendous footage that people saw of people sheltering on the beach and having to be rescued by army boats and all of that. Um, There was so much loss down there and wildlife carers were overwhelmed, of course. So this time last year, we were taking, um, you know, we've got this special formula for kangaroos and another special formula for wombats and another special formula for koalas. So I went and got all of this from these, again, you can imagine even how the wildlife formula company was overwhelmed. (laughs) So when they stocked up, we went and took some down. 
um, bats as well. We've got flying foxes, which are so crucial, of course, for fertilizing forests. They were poor little baby bats. Were, there were lots of baby bats. So uh, yeah, that was uh, quite heartbreaking, but just so many people just working 24-7 for our beautiful um, wildlife, including koalas. So there is some recovery happening. I was just speaking to somebody. A lot of people here have just been on summer holidays. They visited their coastal little towns and uh, coastal areas that they go for holidays. They said that uh, it is recovering. Someone said that there were birds around, which is very great as well, because we there were terrible stories of so many of our beautiful parrots just dropping from the sky during those bushfires. It was awful. So there was uh, some birds around, which is really heartening. Plus kangaroos, not as many. And of course, it's we don't know what we've lost in terms of species. I think that will come out a bit more this year. There's been a lot of surveys undertaken. We know that koalas are starting to be released back into the wild after being cared for which is really really lovely to see so you know that's starting yes we've lost a lot but we're in the healing phase now there's no doubt we have lost too much but there's lots of greenery we've got a bushland that can recover in some parts so you know for us it's just of course me being an environmental campaigner as well we just need to get obviously up carbon pollution under control we need to massively fast track reaching uh, zero emissions and that's what the government also needs to focus on because you know we can do all the wildlife rescuing we can but if we don't get climate change under control our poor wildlife really doesn't have much of a future. Kate you know you, you speak with such care and passion about the Aussie wildlife do you any have any uh, personal experiences from childhood wildlife encounters or adulthood that you could share with us that have been meaningful for you? Yeah, that's a great question. I'll start with the potentially not so kind of happy and then um, there's two actually. The first was I'm a child of the 70s. So the first was watching night after night the terrible images on our TV screens of the Canadian harp seal culling that was taking place and the beautiful little baby harp seals that were being clubbed by the Canadian sealers actually. And the mother seal is the mother seals just watching and kind of crying at the little babies being dragged away. It was, it was just, I was crying on the TV. I said, what can I do? And anyway, I find Greenpeace and uh, got the posters and got the petitions. And I ended up walking around my um, little country town and getting petitions and getting signatures and basically sending them back to Greenpeace. And I remember this, you know, there was some action there. And I think that's actually what first started my activism. I actually felt empowered and thought, oh, my goodness, I can, you know, and people can make a difference. So that was one thing. And it, I just, those big brown eyes of the, of the little seal, we had lots of pets and all of that. So I've always loved animals. But in terms of nature itself and the wonders of nature, my parents loved national parks. We went bushwalking a fair bit. There's this beautiful national park in Queensland called Lamington National Park, southeast Queensland. I know the one. Isn't it beautiful? Spectacular. Subtropical rainforest, moss, it's beautiful. I was walking, running along the path in front of my parents around a few corners. No one else saw this, but there's a crayfish in that national park, which is bright blue. And it was walking across my path 
and it stopped. No way. This bright blue crayfish, if people let the spiny crayfish, it's called in Lamington National Park, people can Google it. It's true. I wasn't on some, you know, hallucinogenic kind of mushroom or something. I was this bright blue crayfish and I thought, my God, how can nature be so beautiful that there is this wonderful crayfish nobody else saw. I saw it. Yes, other people see them. Um, That point and also that forest, so beautiful. And I thought, I just, this is just magic and we need to do everything we can to protect it. And then as you get older, you realise how much we're not protecting and the insanity of, again, things like the Amazon clearing and everything. And I got active Mm -hmm. after that. But yeah, that little blue crayfish really represented the wonders of nature and how fragile it is and how much we need to to really look after it like we are the custodians but also we are so reliant and so interdependent with nature and I think a lot more people hopefully are starting to realize that right and wanting to return to a right relationship with nature yeah we need to we desperately need to we certainly do What can the international community do to help the Australian koala? Do you have any calls to action for us? We have a Save Our Koalas website, which has the current kind of campaigns, if you like, that we are running here in New South Wales, particularly it's saveourkoalas.org. And it, um, at the moment, it has the recommendations and everything from that inquiry that I was on. And there's a take action button there. We will be updating it this year for everything that we need to be doing to protect koalas here in New South Wales. So I urge people to have a look at that and we'll have links to other koala actions as well. Okay, fantastic. Well, you are a great ambassador for the koala and I really thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on. For more information on how you can help Kate Fairman protect koala habitats, visit saveourkoalas.org. Sentia Planet is brought to you by Susan Woodward and Tiffany Owens. Susan is your host and content sorceress, and I'm Tiffany, your sound editor and post-production ninja. Social media by Bridget MacArthur, art direction by Janet Grimwade, original logo by Vonda Whitley, photograph by Mark Stoop. Intro music, The Spaces Between by Scott Buckley. Interstitial music, Heart by Daniel Birch. Visit us at sentientplanetpodcast.com and join our pod or on socials at Sentient Planet Podcast. Like what you hear? Want more? Subscribe on Patreon and get behind the scenes content and interviews that you won't hear anywhere else. Thanks for listening and love to all beings, great and small.